Return of the Mac, watch my flow. You know that I'll be back. Here I go. All this and more on This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Steamed hams. The graphic adventure. Rick rolls back around. Not another retro joystick. And a 486 Apple Mac. All this and more on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. So a couple of things before we get started this week then, Chris. The first is we are probably going to have three faces next week because uh, I've invited my friend um, Dave. Some some will know him as Velociraptor Dave on other channels. And uh, he's going to join us next week to, um, I don't know, just give a, a third voice to the show for one week only. And uh, he hails from Scotland, so we can enjoy his is um, a Scottish lilt as he chats to us, and perhaps a slightly different perspective from, I know it's not far from where I'm based, but you know, a slightly different part of the world. And uh, we'll see how that goes down. And, and maybe, not every week, but maybe once in a while, we can invite people on just to get their opinions. How do you feel about that, Chris? That sounds exciting. Um, Scotland, you say, are, are we going to do subtitles for YouTube? <laughs> no, no, he's got a, a nice <laughs> Scottish accent. You know, one of those okay. Scottish accents that they <laughs> pay people lots of money to put on their phone system. You know, that that nice, trustworthy sounding. I'm not saying you can trust a word he says, but a trustworthy sounding Scottish <laughs> accent. Yeah. Uh, exactly and also we had a lot of... Mean. We had a lot of comments over on the subreddit in response to the Australian pricing question. We were talking about how much did magazines cost mm. over there uh, compared to over here. Of course, you were based in the UK when you did most of your magazine buying. So we got some yeah. uh, opinions from uh, real Australians, Chris, real Australians. Yes, and, yes, uh, we did. What, what did they have to say? Um, well, I'll jump into that. I've also done some digging of my own as well, because some of the collection that I've I've recollected, if you like, um, are from Australia. So the, I've actually found a couple of Australian receipts okay. inside some of the things I've purchased. So first and foremost, one of the things we did talk about, and just to remind um, listeners, um, when I said last week, you basically double the pounds for the cost in Australia. That may have been misconstrued. I meant you basically double the number of UK pounds to reach the Australian dollar value as an exchange rate, give or take, if that makes sense. So, you know, um, one pound is two Australian dollars generally over time. Um, so Retro Gamer Magazine was one of the things you asked about last week, Neil. And mm -hmm. I, I finally dug out the copy I meant to grab last week because this particular one, which is 100 Games to Play, before you die from 2018 um, this has both prices on it so the uk value is um just under 13 pounds 12 pounds 99 and the australian sticker on it says 24 dollars 95 so pretty much on par in terms now of that, the cost for that that's not the price of your regular monthly magazine though is it is that a special no these are the these are the specials and and um like i think i did say last week as well so this is 100 games to play before you die was like an end of year special i believe for retro yeah. gamer um i find it really hard to actually find a normal regular issue if you want to put it that way um in on the shelves uh, it's not a magazine i personally subscribe to I, obviously i could get it mail order um but if you walk into a shop and go looking for it generally over here you'll find a special like that um, right. rather than just the monthly issues which is a bit of a shame yeah um, so that special yeah. edition just for some context for the american uh, listeners that's 17 dollars 59 cents by today's oh money. you're good um not for a magazine though just to stress that that's almost like a book that's that's your big fat special edition at the end of the year uh, 
but yeah. still on the magazine shelves. Um, yeah. yeah, that's and right. How about games? Because we chatted a bit about games as well, didn't we? We did, but before we do that, so we're talking about the Reddit and YouTube comments, Oz Retro Comp actually shed some light on what it was like in the 80s and 90s for magazines, and he basically stated that not only were the magazines about seven months late, so we're talking about like the C64 magazines and stuff like that back in the 80s. Seven months, Not only were they seven months late, so seven wow. months behind the UK <laughs> and Europe, but off also, for your money, Neil, you didn't get the cover tape. What? Why that didn't make it over here, I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? Um, but he said this does. This did become better um, when, like, the Amiga magazine started coming out, like CU Amiga. The cover discs did at last make their way over to Australia. But, yeah, bizarre only, cover tapes going missing in the post. I can only presume that that was down to, I guess, shipping damage. Uh, a flat yeah. disc is much easier to pack and you can get more magazines into a box than a tape in a plastic case that might crack or something like that. I don't know. That's just pure guessing. Um, but yeah. Maybe but weight. Worse than that. Is the, yeah. Worse than that, the seven-month delay. That's unbelievable. Unbelievable. <laughs> Actually, yeah. I didn't want to, I won't say too much about it because a lot of these modern magazines, they are fan po- projects that are, that are bigger than a fan project, but postage sure. is still a problem for us um, in the modern day, unfortunately, with some of these magazines. Which, But at least we have digital um, download as an option these days. So was, of course, they didn't have that back in the 80s and 90s, but it's true, something we true. still struggle with. So there we go. Um, so, about, yeah, on to um, games game. then, Neil. Yeah. Yeah, so I've got a, a box copy of Swiv that I picked up over here, and this has the original receipt right here. Um, and so this was bought from a shop called Maya, which still exists. It's a department store, uh, and this one was from the Fremantle branch, and it cost fifty nine ninety five in Australian dollars, so around thirty pounds in nineteen ninety one. So again, I reckon that's about on par with what I remember playing for game paying for games most of the time around 25 30 pounds was what i was picking them up for and the next one i've got here is lotus turbo challenge one of my all-time favorite games so -hmm. it was from 1990 i actually picked this one up off its original owner here in perth and the receipt was inside and so this was bought from bruning headlam computers in perth and the receipt says the game was 70 dollars, so that's around 25 quid Um, hang on hang on hang on on. swift was $60, $60, which is 30 quid, but you're telling me $70 is 25 quid. Oh, no, that's not right, is it? That's not right. <laughs> you, you did your maths. <laughs> My maths has gone totally awry. So that's um, that's 35, isn't it? <laughs> it's it's more. We can safely say I it's went, more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I went, I went down instead of up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. We're going to keep so about, that one in. That's fine. So about £35 yeah. then for Yeah, about £35. Yeah, um, yeah. And, so, and how does that sit with the UK prices? I reckon that's a that's a bit like I said. I remember paying about twenty five pounds, so maybe a, a little bit more expensive. Do you think than what Amiga games were going for off, off the shelves back in the day? Yeah, I think so. Both the examples you've given are sort of big box, even though they're not big box by PC standards, by tape yeah. standards, they're big box premium games. Um, yeah, so that's right. They would normally go for anything from ten pounds to about twenty five pounds over here, depending yeah, on the game. Yeah. I would say. So, so I that's think not too a, bad. It's a slight premium, but it's not too bad. But interestingly, that last receipt, the he, the buyer had also bought at the same time. There's another line item, and it's a joystick, and it just says Navigator. So I'm assuming uh, it was uh, a Conix Navigator. 
that so that was for thirty dollars the joystick. Um, I'm, I just want to know who would choose to play Lotus with a, a Conics Navigator, Neil. <laughs> that oh, wouldn't don't be you my bad choice. mouth the Navigator. That was a good joystick. <laughs> Perfect for a driving joystick. game. Come on. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, feedback. Oh, go on. Sorry. With with uh, Lotus, was it fired to accelerate or up to accelerate? I can't remember. You could choose. You could yeah, choose. So the Navigator would have been fine with the trigger grip to accelerate. That's true. And right on the top. Yeah, That's true. You take, you yeah, take that yeah. back, Chris. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> I ended up trying. No, we, we won't talk about joysticks, Neil. We won't talk about joysticks. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So anyway, feedback from some of the listeners and viewers. So Dante Ben chimed in uh, and states that Street Fighter 2 for the Genesis slash Mega Drive cost him $120, 120 Australian. Um, so that's about 60 quid, unless my maths has gone as bad as it did just now. Um, uh, I think that's pretty up there. Uh, and he ends with a very fair point that you wouldn't pay that for a AAA game even today. I don't know. I think some people would. I think £60 for day one premium launch title, you know, launch day title. I think people might pay that um, if yeah. not a little bit more. Hmm. Over here, generally, you'd be looking at a special boxed edition, maybe with like a figurine or something, or maybe a metal case box day one, like you say. True. Mind but you, we if you wanted um, the generic version, the generic, let's say, PS4 blue case, um, generally, they're $60. True. But what that price was, £60, we haven't accounted for inflation. So actually, that, that would no. have been a hell of a lot more. Hell of a lot more now. Yeah. 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 Anyway, good chat. Should we get into our stories this week? I think we better. Let's do it. If I was to say steamed hams, Neil, what would spring to mind? Steamed hams. Um, ham, Chris, steamed. <laughs> Perhaps a nice Christmas <laughs> ham, spices, honey, a treacle glaze dripping off the side. I can see you smacking your lips at the thought of it. <laughs> right so it's not just me then neil um <laughs> it, it is kind of not ironic that i i chose to cover this story actually as the apparently famous uh in inverted commas simpsons steamed ham scene didn't ring any bells with me until i rewatched it to research this story um it I, kind of goes back to what we were saying the other week neil about retention of tv shows these days oh, but yes. anyway <laughs> <laughs> um so this story was shared by reddit user oz retro comp and i'm pretty sure that's a youtube channel neil um anyway it, it's all about this scene from the simpsons that has been turned into a point and click adventure game he kindly linked us to the story on GameSpot by eddie mccook mccook how do you pronounce that one do you want to give it McCook. a go neil <laughs> eddie mccook. mccook let's go with that okay yeah uh, which has full details on this very nice-looking, retro-looking conversion of the scene from The Simpsons, which is from Season 7, Episode 21. Uh, and the game has been made by Game Jolt user Neo Dement and has taken this famous and apparently memorable scene and turned <laughs> it into a point-and-click adventure. He has purposely intended not to only faithfully recreate the scene, but also do it in the style of a LucasArts point-and-click adventure game. Have you taken a look, Neil? Any thoughts? I have. I have. Um, the first thing I had to do was look up the steamed ham scene like you did. And, not just uh, me. It, it's a brilliant scene. I was, I was giggling away while I watched it. Um, I haven't watched The Simpsons regularly for many, many years, so it was nice to dip back in and see... Um, I don't know what year that scene was from, but it was certainly well written and I enjoyed it. So I can see why he chose that. Um, at first, when I started watching this, I thought this was just going to be kind of a pixel art style animation scene. 
I was surprised that it was actually a playable game of sorts. And it mm. incorporates those voice clips perfectly from the actual scene. They just fit perfectly. I, I don't think the scene had any background music, so it was easy enough to lift the voice clips out and drop them in. And he's done it in a way that does look just like a LucasArts game. Uh, mm. The Simpsons always lent itself really well to video games, I thought. You know, um, if we go all the way back to, mm, I can't remember which one was the first, whether it was the arcade game or Bart versus the Space Mutants or which game it was. But uh, the art style just lends itself really well to video games. And sometimes they tried to push it too far. So <clears throat> there was um, the Simpsons game, which was a point-and-click adventure game, but it was from a first-person view, and that was Virtual Springfield. I don't know if you ever played that one. And, no. um, yeah, I, I, it didn't really work so well for me. So to see it drop back to a LucasArts-style game, uh, I think works perfectly. I think the art looks great, I think. I would like to see more than just this scene. I want to see a full LucasArts style point and click adventure game in this style. That's how much I enjoyed watching this. Um, I'm not sure I want to go out and, and play the demo straight away because as games go, it's it's kind of linear. If you've watched the Steam's mm. hands, ham scene, you know exactly what to click on, don't you? <laughs> and exactly where the conversation yeah. will go. And in the demonstration, you'll notice the conversation never deviates from the original scene. He doesn't click on any of the other options, the wrong options. So I That's don't know right. what will happen yeah. there. I don't know. Maybe they pick voice clips from other shows to to make that work, but I'd like to know what happens there. Yeah. How about you? Did you like it? Yeah. Again, um, I, I did look at downloading and installing it and I actually couldn't get my head around it in the time I had. I've got to be honest, Neil. So I, I too just watched the demo. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it looks good. Um, did you, did, did, were you into point and click adventures back in the day, Neil? Did you? Did yes. You give yeah, it yeah, massively. Oh, yeah, massively. Did. And um, it was one of those genres where upgrading from the 16-bit machine to a, to a PC where it really shone. I think the first one that I went out and bought when I moved to PC was Day of the Tentacle, which was a a talky CD-ROM version. So it was a huge step up from playing um, Police Quest 3 was one I played a huge amount on my Amiga with no hard drive, huge amount of disk swapping, load, you know, really long load times to then go to uh, a CD-ROM-based game with full speech, 256 colors. The animation in Day of the Tentacle was just superb. Um, So yeah, I I was hooked from that moment on. And um, nice. it wasn't just the the Lucas and Sierra games, which everyone raves about these days, that I enjoyed. Um, there were some obscure ones, like um, if, if we're going beyond just point and click and we're allowing text passers and just adventure games as a whole, uh, there was this weird one called Crash Garrett that I used to play on the Amiga. I don't know if you ever came across that. Um, I think I picked it up as a budget title. And it was just this nice kind of comic book style game. Um, I never completed it. And looking back on reviews now, a lot of people say it's so bugged to hell that it's impossible to complete the (laughs) English version. You have to play the (laughs) French version to complete it. But I never got far enough in the game to to really figure that out. So, But it was one I used to enjoy playing. And um, uh, another one which I really loved was um, Heart of China by Dynamics. I don't know if you ever played that one. It was on the Amiga and PC. Uh, Dynamics also made flight sims. Uh, so there yeah. was this kind of, there were, there were I think there were two sections in it, which were 3D, which were obviously lifted from their flight sim engines. So you played this really beautifully illustrated 
adventure game and then you jump into a tank for one scene and have to drive that down a valley and shoot other tanks so there were some really nice action parts in it yeah check it out heart Heart of china is well worth watching out uh, looking out for um i could go on but let's let's hear some of your examples chris if you were into the (laughs) genre (laughs) well yeah again uh rather ironic that i picked this story but i did think it was an interesting story um, because i wasn't actually big into point and click adventures back in the day and it's an odd one. I don't know why they kind of, I passed them over because I was into text adventures um, like Sphinx Adventure on the Acorn Electron. And I even recall there was a, a, a magazine tape, you know, a, a cover tape that came with a magazine, one of the Spectrum magazines back in the day that came with a text adventure. And hopefully somebody can remember the name for me. But the entire premise was you were sitting in the bathroom and you had to escape. And that was the entire game. <laughs> Wow, you know, lots of look commands and yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So, and then from there, I sort of, I don't know, I I just, once I started looking at point and click adventure games and a lot of them would also incorporate the text along the bottom, I just wanted to jump into, you know, full action games at that point. They they really didn't interest me. So can't, can't say why. Um, But yeah, so I'm now rediscovering them because obviously there's a lot of classic games that I think you just simply have to play. Um, And of course, some of them are already loaded on the A1200 that I bought, and obviously I've also got some of them as uh, downloads from GOG. Um, so I'm playing about at the moment with Lure of the Temptress, Temptress and Elvira. No particular reason why I chose those two, Neil. I uh, streamed Elvira recently, and I, I even with a walkthrough, I gave up on it because as a segment, <laughs> it was just pure grind. You just have to collect all these regents, and it takes forever. And you're constantly being attacked by skeleton guards. And oh, I just, <laughs> it just ruined the game for me because it was a game that I've always held in really high regard and loved. And then mm. I never got that far in the game originally. To, so to find it had this grind element, oh, I, I really didn't like it. Um, <laughs> I'll give you another one to avoid, and that's Codename Iceman, which I played recently. That's a Sierra game. It was made by the same programmer that made the Police Quest series. But in that first Police Quest, he had the assistant assistance of al Lowe of leisure suit larry fame so he kind of pulled him back because he made this adventure game originally that was just pure police procedure that it was devoid of all fun whatsoever it was just procedure and then he went on to make uh, codename iceman without al Lowe to rein him back and it is just pure submarine driving procedure it is it is an adventure game devoid of all fun is and we, and we played it on twitch and we ground through to the end of it just to say we oh. beat this thing but yeah codename iceman not fun not fun at all <laughs> yeah no, so I mean, going back to this Simpsons, even though it's not my genre of choice, uh, as always with these fan projects, Neil, whether it's our thing or not, it doesn't matter. There's there's no denying the effort that's gone into a project like this. So he's hoping the copyright fun police actually reward Neo Dement rather than issue a takedown notice or all that work will go up in smoke. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> you see what I did there? <laughs> <laughs> Our next story comes to our subreddit via a link posted. Um, in fact, I posted this one. Uh, <laughs> I, took, uh, I took hosting uh, rights here. Uh, I posted a link via Indie Retro News where I first read about it. Uh, and then my link that I posted on our, our subreddit promptly vanished and was marked as spam. So thank you, Reddit, <laughs> for accusing me of spamming our own subreddit. It was all about the infuriatingly difficult 1989 classic Rick Dangerous, originally programmed by Simon Phipps at Core Design. 
Uh, it has now been remastered for AGA-equipped Amigas. It's made using the Scorpion engine, and graphic assets were remade with the help of a homebrew version of this, which came out back in 2008, I think it was, for the Nintendo Wii. So leveraging the really nice art from that homebrew version. Uh, the remake is a submission by Z Team to the AMI Game Jam competition. I don't know if you've been following this, Chris. Mm. Uh, en- entries for the competition were closed at the end of January. So we're looking forward to seeing who's won that. Uh, and that will be announced. Uh, I think it will be announced on our friend Amiga Bill's stream if it hasn't already been announced when this goes out. So keep an eye on that. We'll talk about some of the other entries into AMI Game Jam shortly, but let's just stick with Rick Dangerous because that's how I came across this story. Uh, that game for me, Chris, was a real Marmite game, or, or should I say Vegemite for you over there. Uh, yes, I yes. loved the character. <laughs> I loved the art style. I loved, it was basically just lifted from Indiana Jones, let's be honest. But it did it in its own fun way. But it was a very frustrating game, a really frustrating game. Um, I think... To get anywhere in it, you really needed a pirated version with the trainer tacked onto the start of the game. That was mandatory. Uh, And uh, I can't say I ever completed it even with the trainer. I would just dip into it every now and then to remind myself how frustrating it was, give up on it and return to it maybe a week later. How about you? Did you play the original game back in the day? Uh, it's one I didn't play back in the day. People are going to start to think I haven't played anything oh, back no. in the day, Daniel, but it's just <laughs> it's just the games we're talking about. But anyway, I have now um, part of my homework, Neil. So I actually dug dug in deep and uh, you know took one for the team and, and played it for a couple, quite a bit of time yesterday. In fact, yep, it's just instant fun. Instant fun was had by me anyway. Uh, giving this a quick run, as perhaps it's already preloaded on my a1200 neil like many other games we've discussed already this oh today. i get you <laughs> yep it's a nice um puzzler platformer with a very very unofficial indiana jones vibe like you said and i also feel a hint of hero in there as well neil with the bomb placing mechanic all right okay so uh, well that's interesting that you've never played it before um i mean it's not quite the bombshell as the time uh, John told us he'd never played Quake, but it's getting up there. Getting up there. <laughs> I have played Quake, I can tell you that. <laughs> so what we've what we played here, this remake, is beta 0.4 that's been submitted for the competition. So I played it for some time. Uh, my experience of this remake right off the bat is everyone will remember you start with the rolling stone following you in true Indiana Jones style, and you have to run from the boulder. If you go right... And then you go left again. Instead of getting one boulder, you get three boulders chasing you. There's obviously this spawn point, And if you go back and cross it again, it just spawns more boulders. <laughs> so that was the first bug that I noticed on here. Um, there's a little get out at the start to get away from the boulder without doing the full boulder run. I don't know if that's just in there temporarily, but that surprised me. Rick moves a little bit more quickly than the original. Um, that's not a bad thing. You know, uh, the original... When you go back and play it after playing this, it does feel quite a bit slower, but we'll come on to the original in a moment. Collision detection, it's not perfect. Um, there were some platforms with like these blue flowery flourishes out the top that you don't actually land on properly. You hover above them. That was a bit weird. There was a moving platform. This The first moving platform puzzle that you come across in Rick Dangerous. I banged my head on the bottom of the platform. And as a result, I ended up within the tiles in the floor and uh, just kind of, yeah, sunk into the floor. It was all a bit odd. (laughs) Um, 
and I've, I've, I've sat, I feel like I'm just talking this thing down, but I'm just going through the list of things I noticed and want to acknowledge this is 0.4. So this is not claiming to be the finished version. Um, You're a beta tester, Neil. I'm, be- I'm beta testing. Yeah, I'm giving my feedback on it. Uh, a big thing that I noticed was that enemies follow a set path rather than being aware of your position like they are in the original. So they respond to where you are in the original. But on this one, they just go back and forward. And to its credit, the controls are much better in this remake. So it's fire to shoot, B for bomb. And if you've played the original, you have to hold fire and press up to shoot and hold fire and press down to bomb on the joystick. So I do like this control method a lot better. Um, Although Rick has had some inertia added to his movement. So when you stop moving, he kind of carries on moving a little bit. That takes a little bit of getting used to, but you do get used to it. So... That's my feedback as a, a beta tester to, to the Z team or Z team. Uh, hopefully, though, um, I really do hope that they'll see this through to version one of the release. I'd like to see these bugs ironed out. Um, did you come across any bugs or oddities when you played it? Um, I did give it a go, Neil. Um, oddly, yeah. I didn't get the three boulder thing at the start, but that maybe I didn't do the go left, and I, I definitely didn't find a way to beat the first boulder without doing the full run, so that's that's probably why. I did find evading that first boulder much harder than the original. I kept falling yeah. down onto the first savage, and that's in part due to the inertia you were just mentioning. Um, Keeping in mind, it was yeah. this was only ten minutes after I'd been playing the original for the first time as well. Um, but I actually found—I hate to say—I found the original easier to get to grips with. Um, and oddly, um, I'll confess, I didn't read the controls before my first go either. Um, <laughs> but I—I I actually couldn't figure out how to place a bomb for quite a while. I had to come out of the game, go back, read the instructions on the web page, reload it, and then I was good to go. Uh, whereas in the original, I found the controls a lot more intuitive. Not so much the push up to shoot, that is a bit bizarre, but the pull down uh, with fire to drop a bomb, again, probably because of the similarity I, I find to Hero, um, that just made sense to me. So perhaps if they do go to a version one, they could include a classics control as an option. That would fix that. Um, I'm going to have to keep playing the two side by side, Neil. Um, I mean, both are instant fun and frustration, (laughs) which is a good thing about all games, I'm sure. Um, But after about an hour or so, I did find I was gravitating back towards the original. Visually, though, the remake really pops, in my opinion. It just really lifts the look of the game. And I don't know about you, but I, I found that with the updated graphics, I kind of got a hint of gods in there as well, just with the graphics style. Um... And that's what excites me about projects like this, mainly because I'm still keen to see games that highlight the point of difference for the A1200 and the AGA chipset. Pickings were slim back in the day, Neil, let's be honest. Mm. Um, So a game that allows a direct comparison and really shows off what the chipset can do is, well, it's 30 years too late, I know, um, but it's still a good thing in my book. Are Are there any other games on the horizon, Neil? Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you about the AGA side of things. Uh, The more we can see of it being used, the better. The trick, by the way, to the boulder on the remake is when you fall down the first hole, just go to the right and the boulder will fall to the left and carry on without you. And then it will land Ah. on the Savage. 
it wasn't on the original. It's it's just made it easier for these, you know, lightweight modern gamers. I think that's why it's there. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, more games on the horizon. Looking at the Amiga or AmiJam entries as a whole, there are 18 submissions. They include Wonderboy, Command and Conquer, Poker Knight, Poker Knight's Dream Girls, mm. Green Beret, Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man 500, Dracula, a.k.a. Castlevania, Nightmare, and a whole lot more. Many of them remasters or ports. Now, standouts for me here in the list were uh, Nightmare. Uh, this was an MSX game originally, and Hoffman has ported it over to the Amiga hot on the, pre- hot on the heels of his previous port, which was Metal Gear, which he did, another MSX port. So he's obviously really focused in on... Um, that assembly conversion that he does from the Z80 on the MSX over to the X68000. He's mastered it and he's knocking out ports left, right and center. So another great port by him. And that is a complete port of the game rather than a beta entry. So huge, huge kudos for him for doing that. This isn't, you know, a 0.4. You can play this thing from start to finish and really enjoy it with the added touch of Hoffman music remixes on top, which he always does so well. Now, Dracula, I found to be a really interesting one in the entries because this will tap into what you were just saying. This is a port of Mm. the Sharp X68000 version of the game. And to me, an AGA Amiga feels very much like the X68000. I think the two are very closely aligned machines hardware-wise. Yes, it took the Amiga many years longer to reach that standard, but it got just about there with the AGA chipset. So I think there's probably a wealth of ports waiting to be had from the 68,000 over to the 1200. I was chatting to Dave, who will be with us next week, earlier today, and he suggested that uh, the RPG library on the X68,000, because that was a big genre over in Japan, there are probably a lot of really great games that can make full use of the AGA colors and everything else that have probably never been translated to English. So it'd be really nice to get some translations as well as uh, quality Mm. games that will use AGA. It'd be nice to see some of those. A lot of the entries in this thing are using the Scorpion engine as their base starting point, including Green Beret, Dracula, Rick Dangerous, and Wonder Boy. We've talked about Scorpion before. And I think what we're seeing in these versions of the games is that it highlights the excellence of using Scorpion. You know, it gives you the ability to rapidly prototype games and, you know, put pretty fast moving games together very quickly. But the top of the tree is always going to be a game written in, from the ground up in assembly language. You know, these are still hardware platforms with limitations. You've still got to work within those limitations. And Scorpion will always have an overhead. Doesn't matter how small it is, it's an overhead. I mean, it's an engine written to try and be flexible, but it will have its limitations. So you're never going to be a pure assembly language game. And I think that's why Nightmare really stands out for me because. You know, Hoffman has painstakingly line by line inspected and converted that Z80 assembly code over to 68,000. No unnecessary overheads. It runs as fast as it can possibly go. Added Hoffman flavor in the soundtrack. So the winner for me, the standout game for me is Nightmare. Um, The odd one for me is Command and Conquer because the requirements to play that one are a Pi Storm or a Vampire. That ain't go- that ain't working at all anywhere near a classic Amiga. Um, Is it still so that Amiga? was a bit of an oddity <laughs> for me? 
Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, what about you, Chris? Did you make it any further than Poker Night's Dream Girls? I have no idea what you're talking about, Neil. (laughs) But if I did, my only question would be, where did Lisa pull those two aces from right when I was betting high on a pair of kings? I mean, come on. Um, No, but seriously... That may or may not have happened last night. Um, (laughs) The one that stood out to me, um, and I've been watching some YouTube clips about it earlier this week as well, was one of the ones anyway was Wonderboy. Um, That always makes me think of the Master System for some reason, and it was mostly an 8-bit game, wasn't it, Neil? Yeah, there were Wonder Boys on the Master System, on the C64, on, you know, all all kinds of 8-bit platforms. Um, And I know what you're going to say. It's called Wonder Boy 1200, isn't it? So <laughs> actually, I didn't you know, spot that in the title, but yeah, I think so, I think so it's essentially we're taking an eight-bit yeah. game and porting it to a thirty-two-bit system to prove that it can. I don't know. It's again, I'm not a developer, so kudos to the work that goes into these things. But yeah, it's an interesting pick, anyway. Um, but the one that I'm actually quite excited about is actually Green Beret because um, that's one that I had from day one with my Spectrum Plus 3 because it came on the Chartbusters disc. Um, so very much enjoy playing that. And as everybody says about Green Beret, it's an exceptionally hard game. Um, so I'm actually quite looking forward to an Amiga port. That would be awesome. That would be rush and attack to our American friends, wouldn't it, Green Beret? Um, uh. Again, I think... Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that was listed as an Amiga 1200 requirement as well. And I think this all yeah. comes back to the Scorpion engine again. Um, if they're adding more colorful sprites and things like that, then great. Like you say, it's nice to see the AGA chipset used. If it just needs a 1200 because of the overheads, I don't know. It's always nice to see people squeeze and squeeze and, and get it down to the the lowest common denominator, which is, of course, the Amiga 500. So I always like to see those ones. Anyway, some really admirable attempts. It's nice to see the scene so alive and active. And, uh, well, I'm looking forward to seeing what people do next. And maybe, maybe if we're lucky, they'll tap into some more of those X68000 games like Dracula. And uh, we'll see even more AGA games that do actually need AGA to to get the most out of them. And we can enjoy the Amiga 1200 platform proper. Um, Here's hoping. I'm sorry, Neil. I'm so, so sorry. It's another joystick Mm -hmm. story. No, not another one. Joysticks are really becoming the new minis on this show, aren't they? Another joystick story every week. And I might actually have a joystick story of my own as well to throw into the ring. So uh, let's start with yours. What have you got for us, Chris? Well, actually, before we do cover the story, uh, you want more of an international view, right? Even though you keep forgetting mm-hmm. that I'm English. Um, <laughs> but have you heard of the Have you heard of the Battle Station Two, Neil? I haven't. No. Um, and if you want me to guess at what it is, what springs to mind would be one of those big two joystick Mech Warrior style controllers. Am I anywhere close with that? Oh, you're getting close. Basically, the Battle Station 2 is an Australian-made two-player fight-style arcade stick by a company called okay. Multicoin Australia. And actually, thanks to one of my friends here from the Perth Amiga Users Group, Shane, I've got his right here with me. So oh, I will wow. describe it for the listeners, but for those on YouTube, a massive piece of kit. Full metal construction, that's metal, Neil. This thing is crazy. It really deserves its name. I swear you could take this thing into a war zone and it could come out unharmed. (laughs) Um, It's uh, obviously a multi-system. Oh, yes, on the back, you've got a heap of ports. 
uh, that are duplicated for joystick one and joystick two. And originally it would have come with a heap of connectors because this thing is compatible with, wait for it, the NES, the Master System, the SNES, the Mega Drive, the Amiga or Commodore 64, uh, and Atari, which of course also means things like a, a Spectrum via a Kempston joystick interface. But of course, the Australians didn't think that was worth putting on the box. Um, some stats, because I wasn't sure if I was going to have one here in the flesh, but this thing is huge. It weighs in at just under five kilos, and it's about uh, half a meter wide. Um, and it actually comes with, because of its size and weight, it comes with this massive... Sorry, it comes with this massive carry bag to actually lug it around in. So it looks like the sort of thing, if you're listening on the podcast, that you would carry a rocket launcher around in. That's exactly what I was going to say. It looks like a shoulder-mounted rocket launcher. Yeah, it <laughs> it's an amazing piece of kit. So anyway, its year of release was 1993 in the USA, um, where I don't think it really took off, funnily enough. Um, so we think it was either 93 or maybe a year or, or two before that in Australia, its original release. Um, and yeah, it's often shows up, this particular one shows up at the Perth Amiga users groups quite regularly because Shane brings it around and it's usually plugged into a CD32 playing chaos engine. Um, I think it's absolutely stunning. The original price back in 93, we think was around 200 to $300. So this is for a joystick, Neil, that would have been a, a lot of money and about a hundred, mm. between a hundred and 150 pounds again check my maths um but that that kind of money over here in australia near what i'm pretty sure you could have bought a house for that <laughs> probably probably uh, yeah it's an impressive bit of kit that thing is huge that thing is solid uh i uh, until i saw that the top of the tree if i wanted to play arcade games with an arcade stick at home would have been something like do you remember there was one for the mega drive was it the mega stick or something like that with six buttons yeah yeah you know it was plastic. It wasn't made out of metal like that. That looks like it's been lifted out of a very expensive arcade machine and um, yep. would last forever. And indeed, it has done because you sat there with it now in 2022 with the carry case as well. And it looks as good as new to me. Um, hopefully, yeah. while you've been talking about it, hopefully after the show, we can get some close-up shots for Duncan to just kind of overlay so people can see see it really nicely. I'm especially Absolutely. interested in those rear ports because there's just so many of them uh obviously it wanted to cater to every system under the sun and mm. there they are that's that's and, how it's um, got around it so basically you've got an output for joystick one and two but for different for three different systems that's how that works so yeah. that the pinouts change and then you've got a switch here that also does the same and there's also another output which i was reading up on um appears to be so that you could plug it into certain arcade boards um oh so, okay yeah, so real... sort of like a super gun yeah yeah Real arcade focus to it. Yep, six buttons per stick. Beautiful piece of kit. Maybe it maybe it plugged into Neo Geo boards. Maybe that's what it was for. Hmm. Oh, maybe. Interesting. The, the joystick I wanted to bring to the party, um, I, I discovered at the last minute before we started recording that I can't actually tell you about. Um, because <laughs> it's a, it's a, a, a 3D printed one designed by a chap who's made a video on it, which he's going to release in a couple of weeks. So he just wants me to hold off until he gets to release that video. But I can tell you already, it's it's really quite cool. And it's made me realize um, more and more, but this project really cemented it for me. We're distancing ourselves more and more from 3D printing, being kind of cool, but slightly janky, prototypey things, to actually producing some pretty good quality products. Um, 
the first realization for me of this is, is when we made, started making the multi-system cases for the Mr. Multi-System and produced something mm. that originally a lot of people said, well, you can't 3D print something of a good quality. And then well, people have received them and, and realized that actually you can do really high quality work with 3D printing these days. And this joystick, which you'll see in a few weeks, hopefully, is another example of that because it looks like an original um it's clicky. I'm trying not to give too much away, but it sounds like an original uh, and it just looks like, yeah, I would absolutely love that over probably a lot of the 30 year old joysticks that I've got here that are a little bit sloppy showing their age, you know, uh, it's nice to look at them, but a lot of them, unless you do a lot of maintenance work on them, they just don't feel as tight, as tight as the originals, you know, I don't know if that's yeah. just me. Um, so it's nice that these options exist. And if 3D printing is the way to go, then brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Well, I, I guess we should actually talk about the joystick that was brought to our attention by Mr. Costado, oh, yeah. Neil. <laughs> yeah, I've forgotten about that. Um, so it, it appears to be an Atari-branded joystick, um, but only available from one retailer, which seems a bit odd. So that may require some further investigation. Um, but anyway, it's branded Atari. And it's called the Atari Single Player USB Fight Stick. It's covered in wood grain. Well, not covered, but it, it definitely has a lot of wood grain, which, yeah, okay, retro and 2600, so I get that. Um, but I don't know if you can have too much of a good thing, maybe. Um, but, Neil, on closer inspection, this thing has a trackball, and it's not that close to the joystick. So I think you can I think you can slap your ball without hitting your shaft. Um <laughs> And, and it also seems to have pinball-style side buttons as well. Maybe this is the answer to our dreams from two weeks ago, Neil? It's exactly the things I asked for on that stick. Who was making that other stick or proposing that other stick a couple of weeks back? Was it Hap or Suzo? I can't remember Horry? Now. Horry. It was the Horry stick, wasn't it? And that was the first thing yeah. we said. The trackball's too close to the joystick. Could have some pinball buttons on the sides. Uh, this seems to address that. So it looks like they've been beaten to the punch. Um, I did also notice in this shop, which you, I didn't know this, you mentioned it's the only place where you can buy it from, which is very interesting. This store also offers Atari branded SD cards. So um, yeah, hmm. a bit odd. So I, I, I'm wondering if the stick like the SD cards is just licensed. They've just licensed the Atari name to slap the badge on or whether Atari, I don't know if Atari actually produce anything these days. So it's probably just a licensed thing. <laughs> the VCS, um, Neil, the VCS. <laughs> yeah. And hotels. Um, <laughs> and hotels, yeah. But what, what I will say is at least it's not an NFT. I mean, maybe they'll sell <laughs> pictures of it as an NFT. I don't know. But at least at this point, it's not an NFT. Um, anyway, in the, in the photos, which hopefully Duncan is popping up on the screen for us, it does look very, very appealing, I think. The wood grain with the black plastics, it screams Atari 2600. The black buttons um, are on there with just occasional red flourishes. It's not trying to be too in your face. It just, just sits really nicely for me when I look at this thing. I think it's pretty classy. My only reservation is that it's listed at $200. Uh, that's US dollars, isn't it? Um, I need to know for that price that this is weighty, that it feels like a quality stick. It doesn't feel like... An empty lunchbox. You know that feeling when you see some a joystick of that yeah. size and you pick it up and it just feels like air? I would be pretty upset if I'd spent $200 and that was the case. 
even if they've put a chunk of lead in there to weigh it down, which they, they would normally do, <laughs> that's fine. Just give me that quality feel, you know, yeah. and so long as the plastics don't creak, I'm assuming, I think it's safe to assume that's not real wood. It's probably a veneer or something that's on there. Um, but it looks really nice. So, um, yeah, I think what I'm saying is if you could send me one, please, Atari, then I can see if, <laughs> you know, I can get a feel for it. I can see if this thing is good. And, you know, I'll, I'll you know, Joe Rogan's got nothing on, on our listening numbers on this show. So, you know, I'll be doing you a favor. Send me one over. We'll get a feel for it. And uh, I'll give you my feedback. Does that sound cool, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> yeah that sounds fantastic um, i'll get you one yeah too. <laughs> oh thanks mate yeah thanks because because i have a platform <laughs> but um yeah um with regards to if it's only sold from one retailer i mean that's what um, mr costado said in the thread and i certainly tried to look for it elsewhere i couldn't find it so don't don't take it as red but that's the only place we can currently find it um but yeah I echo what you said, Neil. It, it looks nice. It does actually look nice, despite my comments on the wood grain. Um, but I'd, I'd have, like you, I'd have to see it in the flesh. I uh, have to feel it. Um, and it does look quite chunky. And like you said, at that price, and I'm pretty sure, um, like you said, that's real American dollars, not our Australian Monopoly dollars. So that that's a quite a hefty price for a joystick um, at the moment. So it better be as durable as, I don't know, a Battle Station 2. Our final story this week was shared by none other than Oz Retro Comp. It's the Oz Retro Comp show this week. And uh, I think you're right when you said earlier he has a YouTube channel. So hopefully Duncan will put a link in the show notes to that to find out more about him. So the story that he shared this week, at first it might trigger some classic hardware people out there, but please don't worry. The story broke on Hacker Day and it was all about a 486-based single board computer being put inside a classic Apple Macintosh with a nice looking 800 by 600 color screen. But before you get angry, stop panicking everyone. The Apple Mac is a replica shell. It's not an original that's been masked for this. So it can all be considered to be a new build. Settle down everyone. Or the correct word for it, Chris, retro rather than vintage. <laughs> I think that's what we should call this. So instead of going all guns blazing on this and trying to be like a modern sleeper system with, I don't know, a mini ITX board in there or something like that, what this actually houses is an AMD 133 megahertz 486. That's a pretty damn fast 486. We're, we're sneaking mm. into Pentium territory there just without the extra instruction set. Um, it's got an ISA Sound Blaster or 64 in there. So being ISA, that guarantees your full compatibility with Sound Blaster, no messing around at all. It's got a hard drive in there, which is a micro SD card based. Fine, nice modern solution. I don't think anyone will complain about that. And it's actually got battery in there, which will allow the whole thing to run for four hours on a single charge screen and all. Wow. So a portable 486 in a Mac case. So the nice thing about this whole setup is that you'll be running classic 486 games natively. There's no DOS box. There's no emulation going on here. And I have to say, I love it. It is quite confusing seeing this kind of thing happening and what my brain tells me should be a Mac. But if you want to create this kind of form factor for a 486, and remember, I think the classic Mac had a little handle tucked away on the top, didn't it? Or at least somewhere where you can slide your hand and pick it up and just walk off with it. And there would have been zip-up cases that you could put it in and walk away with. So it's a really convenient form factor, especially if, like us, you go to 
you know, retro meetups and things like that. That'd be a really nice thing to take away with you. Uh, and if you wanted to make an all-in-one PC like this, they did exist, but from this era, they were really few and far between. So I don't know what you would use as a donor cell if you wanted to make a 486 in this kind of form factor. Quite like it. Chris, what do you make of the project? Yeah, this one did have me confused, I'll be honest, Neil, um, simply because, well, Mac and 486 in the same sentence. Um, perhaps this is the Mac of my dreams, though, Neil, because, you know, it's actually PC compatible, finally. <laughs> well, yeah, 486 compatible. Um, <laughs> I guess, yeah, you would have had to wait for Apple to switch to Intel to be able to run and there, there would have been emulators, but to, to get a good performance, you would have had to switch to that for, I don't know, DOSBox or whatever you wanted to run. But um, the whole project did get me thinking a lot. Uh, and it got me thinking too, is there such a thing as a modern-ish single board 68K based computer that could fit in there? Because it would be nice. I think the icing on the cake would be to run this as an actual native Macintosh of sorts. Um mm. Uh, the closest I could get, and I know these aren't 68K, but you could go down the Raspberry Pi route. You could, um, you could of course, put a mister in there for an FPGA mm -hmm. solution. That would be just fine. Not the cheapest option, but you could run a, you know, a Macintosh core in there. You might be able to squeeze an early power PC based Mac mini in there was my next thought. So I went off and did a quick search and sure enough, a few people have pulled that off. They've taken the Mac mini uh, before it switched to Intel and squeezed it in there. But honestly, I've not been able to come up with something better that's a native 68K-based system to put in a classic Mac than the Macintosh SE30 model, which came out in 1989. That model was a um, a Mac. It was a Mac on steroids, basically. It had a 68030 CPU in that little package. It was all-in-one. It was just a perfect Macintosh, the top of the tree for that line um for me i think so yeah i would i would stick with a macintosh se30 in a macintosh how about you chris can you think of anything better to put in a macintosh shell what would you do with it uh in a macintosh shell yes neil a uh, petrol and a match oh um, bad man are <laughs> oh, the things you're getting to know about me over the weeks neil i'll tell you um i have uh, how do i say this an aversion to max to, oh, to no. all things apple you're gonna um, be cancelled I'll explain. I'll explain. <laughs> Please don't don't unsubscribe. It all stems back to the roles I had I held in the '90s at the start of my career, actually, where the compatibility issues really did make collaboration between the systems a nightmare when forced upon you. And I know times have changed, but those wounds, Neil, those wounds run deep. Um, so yes, burn it with fire. Um, but I guess uh, this one in question has, has been redeemed because it's a PC, so that's fine. Uh, it, it reminds me a little bit of the, not, not this shape, obviously, not this exact one, but the ill-fated EPC that copied the IMAX of the day, uh, a fancy case with an actual usable machine inside. It was a nice welcome change. I'll let myself out, Neil. <laughs> yeah, we, we did have all-in-one PCs. I'm not saying we didn't, but they came... Mm. Uh, most of them came in that post CD-ROM era, didn't they? So, yeah. uh, and some of them inspired by the iMac, of course. But we had the likes of Packard, Bell, and Compaq making these all-in-ones um, back in the CRT era as well. You know, obviously it got a lot easier when flat panels became the norm, but they did exist. Um, and I never really got on board with them because 
I was always one of those people that just said, well, if the monitor goes, I've got to replace the whole thing if it's not yeah. under warranty. And that always worried me. Um, and it always does when I look at anything like that. There's, um, I've been looking recently. Uh, there's a PlayStation 2 you can get that's built into a television, a Sony television. Oh. It looks like a fun thing. But again, I just think, well, if the TV goes, that becomes useless. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the, but also <laughs> they they seem to hold a premium as well because they're considered to be quite collectible probably because when something goes pop people throw the whole thing out so there's not much you know not many of them left anyway i'm going way off track here so back to this project in particular maybe thinking about it just putting a little 486 in there is the best way to go um the the little apple sticker annoys me i think that's what needs to change that's the finishing touch just put an amd sticker over the apple and we're done. I'll be fine with it. Just It just yeah. confuses my brain too much to see the Apple. Um, Chris, I've been covering the Apple IIe recently on RMC Retro. And Mark and I, who have been fixing it up, we've been talking a lot about how we really didn't see many of them in the UK. They were available. They were officially on sale. But we just didn't see many Apple IIs. And later, when everything moved on up to the Macintosh, we did see a few more around. Uh, like you, when I worked in IT, I would always find a Macintosh hiding away in the corner, somewhere in a company that I was supporting, usually the graphic designer. Um, you know, it, it's not a, a made-up fallacy that creative people liked Apple Macs back in the day and continue to do so in the modern day. And for good mm. reason back then, especially because, you know, Adobe Photoshop and um, Premiere and Illustrator, or if you were doing desktop publishing, Quark Express and all of these kinds of programs, they really did work well on a Mac and the displays were just gorgeous. And um, there was good reason if you were creative to use it back then. So I, like you, supported them often begrudgingly as I tried to get them to connect to a, a Windows-based mm. network, to connect to shares, to not forget its credentials, to reconnect to the shares automatically when it booted up. <laughs> all of that pain, we worked through it. Um, and then, uh, basically we, we reached that point, didn't we, where there were le fewer and fewer advantages to be had by using a Macintosh over a PC when they switched to Intel, when parity was found on those Adobe products in particular, I'm not going to start trash talking Macs cause there's still good reason to own them, especially with the, the new, um, what's the new chip that they've put in the modern Macs now? Is it the, the M1, the M1? That, that's the, putting the out acorn some really... chip. Oh no, sorry, it's not an acorn chip. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's putting out some really interesting performance figures. So you know, it continues to be a worthy choice, um, and, and that actually will break the parity with X sixty four and you know mm. X eight six when they move to Intel, and we'll see where that takes things next. Uh, interesting, but it was an interesting time to support them through those different eras of Macintosh. Um, and the challenges that we were faced with. But let's just sp stick specifically to this Macintosh and a classic era that the project's based on. Did you use them much in that pre-Intel era? I know you touched on it a moment ago. Did you have to support a lot of them? Yeah, no, not not so much. It was, it was a little bit later, so it was really in the Intel era that I came across Mac, similar to yourself, really. Um, and it was it was never pleasant, but I, again, I need to caveat that that like yourself, Neil, it was down to my first IT roles. You know, when we're just finding our feet, um, and my first role was actually in IT sales, and I was trying to spec out a solution for a client who had a Windows Server email coming in and a floor full of Macs, ironically, because they were a, a, a PR company. Um, and they were refusing to talk to Exchange. Or, no, I think 
we had to spec out Exchange and the server solution for them, but they didn't have enough money to put in place what we needed to actually make it work with Macs and PCs because they were just starting to get some PCs in. Because funnily enough, they were actually starting to do reviews for computer games and Duke Nukem 3D was one of them. So... Um, and then my second role, which was IT, an IT admin for a, an office with 100 Windows 95 PC, so I was happy as Larry there, um, two NT servers, one Exchange server, and a design studio with about 10 Macs. Mostly were actually clones, though. They were the UMAX clones, um, oh, I so I think they were PowerPC towers. Um, but they just, uh, they just like you just said, they seem to exist in their own little world. Um Yes, they were on the network, but they required their own special share drive on the NC server um, and uh, exchange. When I first came in, my, my then boss hadn't managed in all his time there been able to get them to see exchange properly. Um, and I just walked in and because I didn't know what I was doing with the Macs, this is the irony, he'd set it to TCPIP, which was correct. We had an Ethernet network. And I thought, well, let's try the alternative. And I changed it back to Apple Talk and it worked instantly. I still don't know to this day why that worked. <laughs> he was stunned. And that was literally within my first week. And he knew I'd never touch Macs. But anyway. So how did that work with Exchange for you then? Was there a native Outlook client for the Macs back then? Or did you have to switch them all to kind of POP3 or IMAP to pull the email in? Can you remember? No, I can't remember the detail. I remember Pop3 was in there somewhere, but the, the, no, there was an Outlook client. There was definitely an Outlook client because they, mm-hmm. they had Office on them. Um, but yeah, predominantly it was all, like you said, it was the the Adobe suite. Um, but it was, so for me, it really was in that cusp. And I was sort of one of those slowly, you know, nudging away and proving the point that the PCs that were emerging could run the same software. And depending on what money you spent, could run it just as well. And then all the compatibility issues actually disappeared. Um, yeah. But yeah, they were they were interesting times. But I will say before before everybody in America unsubscribes, um, when the G4s came out, Neil, that beautiful case design and being in IT support, I mean, A, the Macs really didn't need that much support, although we did have a couple of viruses sneak in for them. Um, but if you needed to do anything inside the machine, once the G4s came out and you just had that little ring pull, you just pulled the whole side of the case down, the entire motherboard was there. I always acknowledge good design, Neil, and mm-hmm. that's what Macs actually have in spades. So anyway, moving on. They do, they do. And uh, um, I'll put a video out soon because I've been moving my whole storeroom. It doesn't sound like a very interesting video, Neil moves a storeroom, but I'm going to make the video anyway. <laughs> and as I was moving it, I realized just how many Macs I had from that G4, G5 era. And, and even wow. though some of them I've never turned on, I just can't bring myself to sell them on or get rid of them because they, they just mm. look so beautiful, especially They're that gorgeous. big silver tower case, that big mm. metal case. Oh, lovely looking machines. Um, anyway, let's get back uh, back to this project, the Mac Classic that's been converted. Um, do check out the links in the show notes. Also, Chris, I'm really pleased that you touched a little bit on your history of IT support because I think we've probably got some good war stories to share. It sounds like we were working in Absolutely. the same era. So we'll have to have a chat about some of those in, on future shows. But uh, for this story in particular, check out the show notes and um, please think long and hard before you start taking Dremels to your own vintage hardware there are other options out there like this reproduction case. And if you've come across any projects like this that were done particularly well, do share them with us because uh, we'd like to see them and maybe we'll have a chat about them on the show. 
On now to last week's community question of the week, which was, is there a game from back in the day that you were utterly obsessed with? Did you lock yourself away to play it? And did you come to a realization that you had to go cold turkey and wean yourself off of it? If so, how did you manage that? We've had some really good answers this week. We'll go through the top three. Uh, Chris, do you want to start us off with the first answer? Yep. So the first one's from Marky Perry. My best friend in primary school told me one fateful day, have you seen this? Enter Gauntlet. The Gauntlet arcade machine ate hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of my hard-earned preteen dollars. It was ridiculous. And all you got for that money was the inevitable dread and depression as that cruel countdown timer started counting down. (laughs) Dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. I hope I've done that noise right. I started (laughs) arguing to myself that it would be much cheaper for me to save up for an Amiga and play that game on the Amiga. Yes, good man. (laughs) That's what you should have done. It's funny, isn't it? Big fan of Gauntlet, Neil? Uh, oh, big fan of Gauntlet, but we were just talking last week about Fortnite and about how they've put these kind of fruit machine and gambling type addictive uh, things into modern games. But actually, you only have to look at Gauntlet as an example of a really old school game that was designed to take all of your money. Uh, mm. And it did it with a simple mechanism of your health constantly going down. I know there was food to pick up if your friend, the wizard, didn't shoot it. But um, on the whole, it was constantly ticking down. And you always had one eye on that. And you were always thinking, have I got another coin in my pocket I could put in to to top that up? And it was thankless. It was a thankless game that took all of your money. So yes, it would have been better to save up your money and bought an Amiga or an Atari ST or a Commodore 64 or pretty much any computer because you could buy Gauntlet on everything, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I had it on the Spectrum and I only played it in the arcade once and was amazed at how quickly the game ended. (laughs) The beautiful thing about the arcade was the four-player version. I mean, when I made a mini arcade cabinet of my own, I based it on the four-player version of Gauntlet just because I love the shape and the dimensions of that cabinet and the speaker at the top. Uh, It's it's just a lovely-looking cabinet. There's no way I'll ever get one up the stairs to get into the cave here, Um, but I can dream maybe one day. Hmm. Our next, um, guess who answer number two comes from, Chris? It's Oz (sighs) RetroConf. He's all Never over heard the of show. The guy. <laughs> it's like a virus this week. Uh, and his answer was the second most popular. And he says, uh, I didn't get properly immersed in games until I started PC gaming. The two games I lost the most hours to were Transport Tycoon and Detroit. Everyone knows what the former is, but the latter is a management sim based on the automotive industry. The fun part about Detroit is that it was up to the player to design their own vehicles with new features added as the company's engineers invented new features and improved existing engines, gearboxes, etc. About the only thing Detroit lacks is the ability to actually drive the vehicles, which is why I absolutely refuse to buy Beam NG. I've I've already lost a fair bit of time to automation, the closest thing to Detroit out there. The last thing um, I need is to use automation's ability to export vehicles to Beam NG and get sucked into driving my own vehicles. Right. <laughs> so <clears throat> I've not actually played Beam NG, but I think we can safely assume that's a driving game. So they're talking about the ability to export from automation into that. Yeah, that, that sounds like a vicious circle. There yeah. was another game like that. Um, I don't know if you remember. You could, if you played SimCity 2000, I think it was streets of SimCity you could import okay. your city into and then you could drive your car around. Um, that would have been cool. <clears throat> yeah, you might have also been able to do it. I can't remember now if SimCopter allowed you to do it or not. 
there was at least talk about doing it in the previews that I read. Um, but certainly Streets of SimCity, you could do it. Yeah. Did you ever play that one? No, I didn't. But with you just saying that, and when you said SimCopter, that's giving me flashbacks to maybe a video LGR did. I'll oh, have okay. to look it up. Yeah, I'm sure there was one where he designed a city and then flew a helicopter around it. Hmm. Maybe sure maybe could. it was those. Yeah. On these games in particular, though, Transport Tycoon, yes, I'm a huge fan of that game. I, I, there's a thing called Open Transport Tycoon Deluxe, which is an open source version of the game. You can play on modern machines. <clears throat> it plays as well as it ever did, and I don't think... Um, I don't think the game was ever bettered than Transport to Tycoon Deluxe. There were um, sort of official sequels to it. They weren't called Transport Tycoon. I can't remember what they were called now, the, the big sequel to it. Um, but uh, yeah, that was the peak for me, Transport Tycoon. So that's worth trying. Detroit, I always remember the reviews. I never played it. So maybe I need to go back and try that one. Hmm. Uh, and our third and final answer. Would you like to read that one, Chris? Yep, no worries. So Tricky VFR 800 um, said this. So Microprose Grand Prix, oh yes, on the A500. Whilst it would be wholly wrong to suggest the game is fully responsible for me failing my A-levels, its presence during those crucial months leading up to my exams was certainly a factor in my academic oh underperformance. Oh, I can so relate. Um <laughs> Even though it's crude by modern day standards, I think it stands a test of time as one of the best recreations of any sport. And while middle-aged me would never admit it publicly, I don't regret any of the time I spent with it or the subsequent effect it had on my further education prospects. It all turned out okay in the end. Oh, Neil, I can, you jump in, but seriously, this, I, I could have written this to be honest. I could have written this. Um, the only thing he hasn't <laughs> mentioned in there is the uh, the hot seat option, which was big with yeah. me and my friends. I would get as many friends over to my house as possible. We'd all okay. choose a driver. You'd set the the race length to you know a good length. It was going to last half an hour to an hour. And then what the game would do is you would it would split up the the race, so you would get so many laps each in your car, and then it would switch to the other player. So. It was multiplayer with the computer driving your car when you weren't sat in there. And that was just a brilliant, brilliant multiplayer experience because it gave you the chance to not only have you go at racing against each other, but not really against each other. Uh, you could also then kind of when you weren't racing, you just sort of muck about with your mates. You know, you just fall around, yeah. you try and put off the guy that was driving and then it was your turn to race. <laughs> and they'd all go, no, don't smash me off the course when it's your go but you'd always be tempted. Yeah. How about you? Did you have similar experiences? Uh, I did in terms of being completely distracted on the lead up to my GCSEs and A-levels. Um, big fan of Microprose Grand Prix. I don't know a single Amiga user that isn't, but you know what? Odd, oddly, you're really selling that multiplayer to me because I never did that. I remember looking at it and thinking, oh, there's no link up because me and my one of my best friends, Steve, we just play link up, stunt car racer, F-16 combat pilot, all of that kind of stuff. So... I never really tried that hot seat mode. We, we really didn't bother with it. So that's going to have to be rectified. Absolutely. Well, if, if you um, wanted, you could put a player, I think, in every single driver in the race. So That's amazing. You know, if you set this up at one of your future meets, you know, you could just have one computer in the <gasps> corner, get everyone to sign up as a driver. And throughout the day, everyone can have their go. Yeah. 
That's a good I mean, idea. Some people will never get to drive because they'll have been smashed off the track by the previous person before they've even had one go on it. But yeah, you know, yeah. maybe maybe make them all invincible or something. <laughs> yeah. But no, I, um, a Grand Prix, I mean, I spent lots of time. I, I would instantly turn off all the assists. And even today, I will I would jibe people on YouTube if I see they're using assists when they're demoing this game. Um, but I would, if there was a Grand Prix on the telly on the Sunday, then I would pick the same track and then I would try and race the full race at the same time as the actual race was going on that's how i enjoyed this game until i realized that actually i wasn't that good at it and just let's just load monza and just go as fast as we can because it's a nice fast <laughs> track with sweeping corners so it remains my favorite track and a track that doesn't matter what game i load even on the ps4 or whatever i will load monza and what i learned from you know microprose grand prix is still there in terms of where the layout of the track is it's it's quite amazing a racing driver for life. Great <laughs> answers, everyone. Thank you so much for contributing. Uh, Chris, would you like to read out our uh, question of the week for next week? What are people going to be asked? Yeah, well, going back to our story really about the um, Simpsons point-and-click adventure game, we'd like to know, what was your favourite adventure game? And that could be anything. That could be a point-and-click adventure game or a text adventure, maybe a dungeon crawler or a Zelda-style game, whatever. Um, what did you love about it? Did it whisk you away to a magical land? Did it totally immerse you? Tell us about it. Excellent. I'm looking forward to the answers coming in for that. As always, head over to our subreddit, reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro and look for the pinned question to comment on that. And also, please do submit any news stories that you come across that you'd like us to discuss on the show. The more stories you can get into the subreddit, the more options we have and the more we have to chat about. So please do contribute over there. And as always, thank you for listening. Take care, everyone. Thanks, guys. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil Thomas from RMC The Cave and Chris Winter from 005 Agima. It was produced by me, Duncan Styles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favourite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on the stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you enjoy our show and would like to support it, then please check out the link to our Patreon page in the show notes or description. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.